0: We just want to include a trigger warning in a, at the beginning of this interview. Uh, the reason is this interview uh, includes some of the most gruesome details we've recorded in any of our podcasts because they relate to crimes against humanity and war. Uh, Teresa Doherty has truly been a guardian of the flame of humanity in uh, in courts of law when dealing with some of the most horrific crimes against the most vulnerable human beings alive today. So, if uh, you feel like you might get upset if you hear details of these crimes. This podcast may be one that you want to not listen to. Thanks very much. Well, welcome everyone to uh, our latest edition of um, uh, this podcast series we're doing under the name Guardians of the Flame. And uh, uh, it, we've interviewed fascinating people over the last couple of years. And um, it's a real privilege today. Um, we're sitting here in on Ancuin Centre uh, on the Irish border. Um, which has been my home for the last 11 years. And we're really privileged to be uh, interviewing today uh, Justice Teresa Doherty. Um, so thank you, Teresa, for coming uh, and joining us today. And I'm really interested in this conversation. You're welcome. Yeah. So um, I'm going to ask you to start by giving a little bit of your background. Um, uh, Teresa is, um, Justice Teresa Doherty has had a, a A remarkable career, as I hope we're going to find out in this next hour. Um, From working uh, in the early days of the Troubles, the civil rights movement, um, providing legal aid in certain parts of Belfast, to ending up getting married, uh, moving to Papua New Guinea, been there for a number of years, and then working in places like Sierra Leone and The Hague, and, and really been involved in some of the most significant landmark rulings, um, In the last few decades and so uh, particularly when it comes to gender-based violence and the rights of women and and children so um, it's a real it's a real honor to be able to hear your story a little bit and and hear what goes behind some of these amazing really significant rulings that you've been involved in so teresa you're from port stewart which is right on the north coast of northern of northern ireland that's correct um you're an irish catholic um you uh, would have grown up at a time before the troubles, before the civil rights movement, where um, many Catholics would have had a real sense of being a minority in this northern part of Ireland. Uh, can you tell us a little bit what what it went into making you who you are? Like, what's your family like? What was it, and and what were some of those early experiences that led you to doing what you do today?
1: Well, my family, as you say, were in Port Steward. My father, God rest him, was a foreman shirt cutter in a factory. He was from Derry, and like many other people in Derry, he was involved in the uh, shirt making industry. But he worked in Coleraine in a company that did not treat him well. He was responsible, I remember him saying, for 128 girls working. And uh, he, once I... He didn't complain in front of his children because I could always hear him complaining to my mother. And he said on one occasion he asked for a rise because when I first started working, I was actually earning as much as my father. And uh, the the owner of the factory told him that if he wanted a better pay, he could go and work for a Catholic. And it really made me very aware how much we were dependent on other people and how we could not make our own way and i was also the first in my family extended family to get the benefit of um, an education my parents were both very intelligent people particularly my mother and my father was always looked to her for guidance and taught me the value or the status of women that I was shocked was not universal. But uh, my aunt, my mother's older sister, was opposed to the idea of the girls in the family getting education. They were country people from Donegal, from Inisho and Head. And she used to say, there's no point in educating them girls. They'll only get married. And once we To make ends meet, my parents used to have to let our house in Port Stewart every summer and I was responsible for taking the younger ones over to Donegal and looking after them. And on one occasion I was asked, and what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to go to university. And my aunt was enraged when this came back to her. She said, that's the wrong answer. You're supposed to say, I want to go and work and help my parents. But my father stood up to her and we did get an education but eventually I, somebody had to go and work and somebody was me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to work first in the civil service in London. And it was a time of the room to let no Irish, no blacks. And you were very, very conscious of your background. And being a northerner, the southerners weren't that anxious to know us northerners, even though we were Donegal. And... Um, I was conscious of that discrimination, so right through from early childhood, we were very conscious of discrimination, both uh, towards women and um, towards minorities. But I uh, also went as a volunteer to Zambia after a few years in in uh, in London. And it was there I realized I wasn't too old to go to university. I always wanted to be a doctor, actually, nothing to do with law. My mother laughed. That was her way of getting out of embarrassing situations. But uh, I decided I would do law and I came back.
0: Okay, So you came back and then that was to Queen's University. That and That was would to have Queen's, been the early yes, 70s.
1: That was the early 70s.
0: So can you sketch a little bit then of um, Maybe those years, especially, and then we Mm. can go into what you've subsequently done. Uh,
1: Well, um, on the way back, I traveled through parts of East Africa and uh, I was on a I had a very bad um, incident in the Sudan. I was glad to get out and uh, I was on a plane and I couldn't reach their luggage rack. And this fella helped me put my luggage up. And I also had trouble with um, the traveller's checks I had were all sterling early only. So this fella offered me some, helped me, gave me some money. The first thing I did was to send it back to him, but we ended up meeting up again and getting married. <laughs> so I still can't reach luggage racks, by the way. But um, I, as you say, I was in at Queen's in the law faculty. I was one of the oldest students there. We were dealing. It was the worst years of the troubles, nineteen seventy onwards, and we were doing things like legal aid clinics in uh, Ballymurphy and Turf Lodge.
0: Just and to kind of for those listening, um, so that would be in Belfast, that was Belfast and Turf Lodge, and it would be kind of West Belfast. Correct. Yeah, uh, kind of uh, mainly completely. Uh, Catholic nationalist
1: Correct. area. It was a nationalist area. Mm. But I was also part of the, uh, I joined NICRA, as it was called, Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, and I was very fortunate to meet John Hume. I mean, I was just a wee person at the back mm. when he was there. But he was a very inspiring person, and like my father, he was from Derry, so there was that connection. Uh, the Doherty's are... D- mm. Derry and John,
0: John Hume ended up becoming a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And Correct. Really, the, one of the political leaders in this country that was most most significant, really, in ushering us into a place of peace here.
1: It was. And one of his tenets, and it's always been one of mine, is violence got Ireland nowhere. We achieve more like for Daniel O'Connell, John Hume, through negotiation and talking than we did through violence. Violence often set us back. So I was a a big believer in that violence does not achieve. And despite the fact I was involved in other civil wars, I still feel very strongly that that's the way it should be. Talk doesn't cost lives. So I was in the civil um, rights movement in Turf Lodge, and one of the things I experienced in the school that we um, were holding, the legal aid clinics, was uh, coming up to Christmas. Mm-hmm. And around uh, the walls of the little school, of this classroom, very junior classroom, where the paintings are children doing nativity scenes. And you had Mary, Joseph and the wean in the middle. And you had cows and things that veterinary science has never seen. But every single one of those pictures had a soldier with a gun. Every single one. And also a lot of them had helicopters rather than angels. And about thirty years so years later when we came to deal with child soldiers for the very first time as a breach of international humanitarian law, I saw those pictures and I realized. I always knew the impact that violence had, particularly fighting had on children.
0: Amazing. So the early days of the Troubles, that was the nineteen seventies, were the were the worst days over here and A lot of violence, military, army presence everywhere. Um, And a country trying to reel with the legacy of discrimination, as you described. You're growing up and civil rights movement and many peaceful activists like John Hume. But then this kind of the outbursts of violence and then retaliation. And and, um, so that was your kind of your grounding and you were a, a... a contemporary of Mary McAleese, She uh, and I were very president of yes, Ireland.
1: She and I were very close friends. Mm. She she was a year, a year ahead of me but we were close friends and we still are. Mm. We we both ardent walkers.
0: Yeah, great. And she <laughs> was from Rostre- or lived in Rostrevor. That for, is
1: correct. Yeah. I uh, we used to visit her house in the mm. and and I've since visited her several times here in Rostrevor. Oh, yeah.
0: Um, so can you just sketch a little bit of what then your life became after that? How did you get from Ballymurphy in Turf Lodge to Papua New Guinea and then to Sierra Leone, the special court, Sierra Leone? And uh, how, Can you sketch your, your career yeah, what, briefly what, for us?
1: Well, I sent this money back to this fellow who was from Scotland, mm-hmm. from Aberdeen, and we were out walking, a, a group, we'd formed a climbing group in Queen's, And we were in Scotland climbing Buchalechum Moor and uh, some of the mountains around there. And we went up to Aberdeen and I met him again. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, my parents, he was not a Catholic and my parents were very disapproving of a non-Catholic. It caused a lot of uh, a a rift, at the beginning anyway, of the family. But... um, we got married, stuck with it, and have been in the 40-odd years since. But he um, had been, um, or st- at that point, Ian had been an architect for UNESCO with um, an expertise in school buildings. But it was invited to go to newcastle upon University as a lecturer on a new topic on housing for developing countries. So we went there and I transferred from Queen's to Newcastle, finished my degree there. And I, I found their attitude to law quite disappointing because Queen's was very questioning, challenging, mm. Mm. looked critically at legal aspects, particularly constitutional ones. Whereas uh, Newcastle at that time, not now, was more of a rote, but there was an element of um, discrimination, even there. not they don't realise h- how m- how discrimination comes across. One of the lecturers was talking about a bad piece of engineering. And he said, and of course, it was built by the Irish. Mm. And it really annoyed me. And I said, aye, but the designer and engineer was English <laughs> and that So you were always those subtle things were going on. And um, while we were there, Ian uh, applied for a position as Associate Professor of Architecture in Papua New Guinea. And we were going to go for three years or maybe two and a half. And uh, we ended up there over 22 and what... So we went out together. I hadn't actually finished my legal qualifications profession. I would got my degree, but not my professional qualifications. And I always remember my parents, my mother, God rest her, came over for the graduation and she said to the professor, I never thought she'd make it. (laughs) So (laughs) I didn't I wouldn't say I got great backing over the years. But in any event, they were very pleased. And uh, we went to Papua New Guinea I worked for a while in the legal aid, what was there called the public solicitors, what we would call the public defender. And it made me realize how tough conditions were in in the prisons. And whilst I was there, Papua New Guinea introduced a new law prohibiting married expatriate female wives to have any public service jobs. So I, unless they were um, particularly designated, so people like teachers and nurses and doctors just lost their jobs overnight, and and so did I. And whilst I was waiting to see if my position would be um, qualified. I uh, was asked by a former colleague if I would t- take his position for six weeks because he wanted to go home and leave and he had a problem, a legal problem and uh, would I look after it? And I said yes I would. So I became a temporary provincial legal officer for Morobe, which is the biggest province in Papua New Guinea be the size of Ulster mm. not bigger. And I uh, The six weeks became seven years. Okay, well. So I, but before that, I went back and did my barrister's degree and professional training. And something that prompted a memory, Johnny, recently there's been a lot of controversy about prosecution of uh, soldiers for incidents that happened here during the Troubles. And one of the very first prosecutions I ever dealt with, as a starting barrister, was prosecuting a British soldier for assault of a girl in Belfast. And he was convicted. It was what we might call a minor assault, but he was still convicted. It was in the newspapers. But nobody said, you shouldn't prosecute soldiers. And as far as I was concerned, and as far as people were concerned there, if you were breaking the law, you were subject to the law. And that's something I've covered with with politicians, leaders, mm. and mm. others since.
0: Mm. And then you're Papua New Guinea, and then was Bougainville the? the next... There
1: was a civil war. Well, what happened was, I was in this position. I did a lot of, uh, although I was. An advisor to a government, and I was drafting legislation and dealing with taxation, and we were doing a lot of mitigating against environmental impact because they were burnt cutting a lot of trees. Malayan, Malaysian uh, timber companies were coming in. I was trying to uh, enforce the environmental laws there to avoid it um, and other things. but I still did a lot of legal aid, and I learnt then. What I had also learned in Zambia as a volunteer, that once you're in prison, how isolated you are, because I used to go out to the prison through um, a religious thing associated with the church. I was asked by one of the officers said, a young lad who was a member of a family that I knew well in Zambia, they were actually what we would now call Zimbabians. And he talked to me and he said he wanted toothpaste. And I realized just how isolated people are in prison. And I also realized very early on how people can be oppressed because they don't know. And that's, I, first, I really learned that in obviously in, at home as a child because if a brown envelope with typewriting came in, there was almost a panic attack on the part of my mother because it was something official, but uh, in Ballymurphy as well. And um, I was in court one day and the magistrate said to me, Miss Doherty, there's a woman out in the prison and she's been convicted by the village court. And uh, I think she should, I don't think she should be there. And I didn't know what to do because I'd never come across a village court or been out to a prison as a lawyer. And I sort of ended up not doing very much. And the next couple of days later, he said to me, have you been out to see that woman yet? And uh, I said, no, I don't have any instructions. But he said, well, get out to that prison and get some. So out I went. And this woman, was in, she was in such a catonic state, she couldn't speak anymore. Her child had been hit by another child in their village, a very remote village up in the mountains. The village court decided they would have a court hearing about it. It seems that nobody told her. She didn't turn up in court with the child. The two children, like children are everywhere, had sorted themselves out. Mm. She didn't turn up at this hearing. The village court said she was in what pigeon was called a big head in contempt immediately find her in her app to a fine of the maximum in default six months imprisonment. And she and the two smallest children were put on a plane and she was in prison within hours Mm. and she didn't know anything. She was completely she couldn't talk to anybody. In fact, she was more or less dumb from. So I um, got her appeal. I got her out. I got we got in touch with the family. They came and collected her. She never spoke to me once. But it made me realise how powerful people who have a little education, little understanding, but a position of power can be oppressive. And I found then I was going back into those prisons regularly and checking, particularly as a judge. I went in prisons all the time, checked. And quite often I would have, the, you know, we Irish say the hand of God. Mm. I'd have this sudden urge, I think I'll go down and do a prison, a cell inspection at the mm. pr- at the police station. And that's where I always found some of the worst mm. abuses. Um, so I got w- known for that sort of thing. Mm. <laughs> and so did Ian, because he would have to get up in the middle of the blooming night and <laughs> drive me to the police <laughs> station. <laughs> 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 or, but uh, they... Um, so I got that reputation, although it wasn't my proper job. Um, coming into prisons later, you know, the things you find. I remember a woman who was serving six months again from a village court because she talked cross to her husband. And I thought, my God, if we were all up for being, talking cross to our husbands, we'd, the place would be packed. <laughs> but Papua New Guinea, like virtually any country I know, there are very few women in prison in comparison to the number of men. Mm. So um, that was where I how I came to be in Papua New Guinea. I went there as uh, the the wife of the main the main uh, job holder. Um, after a while, my name had been put forward to be a more to be, to be um, in a judicial position. The fundamentalists in the, and, um, the culture there, women did not have much status. It varied very much from area to area. You mentioned Bougainville. That was a matrilineal society, and women were very much part of the decision-making.
2: Okay.
1: But not in areas particularly like the Highlands, where they had the Melanesian big man system which reminded me a a way of the old Irish clan system, where you didn't have hereditary chiefs. Um, You had to earn your position. Um, The Polynesian um, people in other parts of the South Pacific and over in the um, Papuan side did have hereditary chieftainship. So there was a big variation in those cultures and the the understanding patrilineal and matrilineal societies.
0: And uh, B- Bougainville, can you just briefly tell us about that and, yes. and what the significance of that in your own career? And
1: Yeah, it, well, it, I'd have to go back a step. I got appointed as the equivalent of a district court judge here as a provincial uh, as a, a senior magistrate. And I was also the the senior police appeals, Mm -hmm. adjudicator, the senior land magistrate, and I was the first woman in any of those positions. And it involved a lot of work, and I was responsible for an area which would be bigger than all of Ireland. And because of work through prisons and other things, I realised how many people were sitting in prison badly. Bad administration is one of the causes of breaches of human rights more than deliberate. I learned that time and time again. The magistrate who forgot to sign in the, the warrants, I found warrants sitting on people's desks while the people, the body was in the prison, but the paper wasn't. And they would sit there. Or uh, another place where I went, where I went out to the prison An older man who needed an interpreter came. The younger man was interpreting for him. And as the younger man left, he said, Judge, when will my case be on? And I said, what's your name? He gave me a name. I thought, I don't remember ever hearing that name. And I uh, came back and I said to the clerk, have we got a file for X? And she said, oh, yeah, I think it's in the cupboard. I said, well, get it out of the cupboard and get it on the list, and I said then, OK, I'm going to have to check the whole lot. So I told the prison to bring all the remandees in and um, worked through all the. Ian had agreed we'd go for lunch, so Ian suddenly found himself sitting with five or six unconvicted prisoners in the back row, but that was constant... Better administration, better administration. I could talk for an hour and a half on it, examples. So I became a first provincial um, senior magistrate. As I said, I was responsible for a very big area. I went into some of those areas and they hadn't had court for maybe eight or nine or ten years. So the backlog was very, very strong. And a year after that, the chief and justice... People
0: were sitting in prison waiting for their correct. court case. So yeah. I mean, they may be innocent, but... That's correct.
1: I always remember one where the man had escaped from prison Hmm. while waiting. Uh, He came, he was recaptured. He got six months from a junior magistrate. And I said, well, why did you... He said, well, they hadn't fed me for three days, so I went home. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's a very good reason. (laughs) But... uh, So I squashed that conviction. So... uh, I went from that to being um, being appointed a judge and I, I had, there was no other women judges. I was one of 17, 16 males and myself. I was the first uh, woman judge in the entire South Pacific region. So I would be invited to places like Samoa and Fiji to talk about women's status and domestic violence in particular, and I did a lot of court cases. Papua New Guinea had a very high rape rate. In fact, one man said wrote to the Chief Justice and said, I don't want that Judge Dorothy doing my rape case. She takes rape very personally. But after um, being in that particular area, mm-hmm. we were in for 16 years, I was transferred to an area called East New Britain, the Rabaul, and that circuit included Bougainville which you asked about. Now Bougainville as I said already was a matrilineal society. It had one of the biggest copper mines, I think the second biggest copper mine it might have been in the world was in that area. Traditionally rights over land went through the female line. The women didn't necessarily own it but their rights over the land passed through the female line. And the women had a certain say in the use of land and how it would be um, divided. Um, Also the use of rocks and sea and fishing rights and collecting. There... When it came to the next generation that were entitled, would have been entitled, through their mother's line for land, the agreement for the mining between the Australians pre-independence of Papua New Guinea had been signed with the men, not with the women. The women weren't consulted. The Australians were fairly um, macho in those days. Changed dramatically since, but in those days they were... When it came to the next generation, the money went down the male line, and the people that would have been traditionally entitled started complaining about their rights. The complaints then escalated as it be- they became more aware that the mining had caused a lot of degradation of the land, spills and... Um, that type of thing. The, the arguments escalated and escalated and Bougainville was a way out and a different time zone to the rest of Papua New Guinea. So where in most of Papua New Guinea it would be getting dark at about 6.30, it was getting dark at maybe 4.30 or 5 there and they wanted a change because they couldn't run things. They were also spending a lot of money paying for civil servants who would be coming maybe from the Papuan side or the Highlands, and when they came to having annual leave, it was very expensive. Bougainville were very well educated people, very intelligent, and prided themselves, they said, on being the darkest people in the world. <laughs> they took great Quite rightly, too, because they were very handsome people, Uh, but very dark-skinned. And the arguments escalated, got tied into the wanting independence. Fighting started. The army um, was sent in to suppress it, were very oppressive. And um, rape, in particular, escalated. Rape is it used never to be acknowledged that it was a fact of war, but we know now we've always known it is, mm. but just wasn't ever acknowledged. Mm. And um, we we're hearing horrific stories of whole villages being destroyed. And John, it's I've been in the um, troubles here in Northern Ireland. I dealt afterwards with Bougainville, and I ended up in Sierra Leone, three civil wars. They might call the Troubles the Troubles of Resistance. That's reality. And each of those was treated completely differently by its own government. There's no consistency in a government approach to its domestic problems when it comes to fighting within its territory. And it was noticeable that they. Um, Papua New Guinea government sent the army in, the army was vicious, there's no point in pretending it wasn't. The fighting was oppressive and as it um, quietened down they started trying to reopen the courts and I was doing the, I was, Bougainville was part of my circuit, New Ireland, East New Britain, West New Britain and Manus were my circuit. I was also on the Supreme Court, but because of circuits, I would be away from home five weeks in every eight. I used to come home and Ian would say, who, who did you say you were? <laughs> Have you been around here before? But uh, yeah, it, it was tough on him, but it, mm. And um, when I started going to Bougainville, one of the things that happened was the government did not classify the crimes there as war crimes. They did not have scheduled offences like they had in Northern Ireland, where there was a different category of crime for crimes that were related directly to the troubles or to the um, different sides. They never declared any organisation to be legal or illegal. They didn't do any of those type of things that were done, say, in Northern Ireland, in answer to the troubles. So it was ordinary. it was an ordinary um, crimes. So I'd be dealing with arson. I remember one person in particular was charged with arson. He had burnt an entire village. Every house in it, the school everything. And um, the what was murder was murder, whereas, in fact, it was something akin to, it wasn't genocide because they, there wasn't an ethnic group that was wiped out, but whole villages were being killed mm. in this fighting.
0: So it's the lack of scheduling a, a crime as a war crime but Correct. just seeing it as a
1: just as, as an ordinary, ordinary crime. crime right mm. and we went out it was tough mm. we were subject to military law I was the only woman I was supposed to share the um, um, circuit with another other judges who always got sick when it came around it, so it was me again And I remember saying to one of my male colleagues, why am I always doing Bougainville? And he said, well, um, I have to share a toilet with the prisoners. I said, you're bloody lucky you've got a toilet. I don't. Mm. I have to do without from (laughs) o'clock. And we were staying on a small island in the middle of the isthmus between what was called Big Buka and Small Buka two islands. There was nothing. There was a market once a week and uh, there were no cars. There were no shops. There were no, you know, if you wanted bread, you brought it with you. Uh, The accommodation was pretty rough. It was just one house. And because I was the only female, I got a room to myself, but there were men sharing rooms. Then we had a female uh, magistrate. And she and I bunked mm. down together. <laughs> that's one of the things that you learn as often as the only woman, and particularly was, women will look after each other. Mm. much more. Men tend to be more competitive. That's my experience, I should say. I'm not a psychologist, mm. but that's an observation. Whereas women will care for each other. And I could tell many stories. And the other thing is the Irish will always look after each other. We are the biggest self-support organization anywhere. Mm. The Irish will always find each other Mm. and look after each other.
0: It's amazing. I met you through Sister Anna-Mary Hannon, who's a Franciscan sister that used to be part of our community here in Rostrever. And a few years ago, she said uh, we were running a reconciliation conference and she said, I've got this friend who is he, a judge, you know, and uh, maybe she should. And she had met you in Papua New Guinea That's and right. uh, the Irish had found each other. That's right. She was from uh, Galway. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and then, I, of course, hearing your story, I was amazed. But uh, yeah, yes,
1: so. it was just to deviate slightly. We uh, I had gone up to Itape, which is the very top of um, Papua New Guinea. It's close to the Arian border. And uh, the accommodation was, let's say, the accommodation had got burnt down because of, um, uh, well, never mind what. But uh, I was staying in what was an outhouse, and the nuns came down and found me and said, you can't stay here, and took me back to the convent. And each time I did that circuit, I would stay in the convent. So yes, and we had several um irish judges there and they also got me to come up and lecture to village court magistrates because of this village court being so could be so oppressive and at that point um papua new guinea had a woman judge had had women magistrates but no village court magistrates were women not until 2012 i think it was and uh, I talked, I was a fluent pidgin speaker, so the lectures were all in pidgin. But Bougainville was very, very difficult. Physically difficult and emotionally difficult. And certain cases would stand out. I remember there was one woman, women as witnesses can be very dignified. I learned that in Bally Murphy. Those women would come in and they were always properly dressed and spoke well. And they had a dignity Mm. and the Bougainvillians were the same. And she talked about her children being killed and um, she knew. And what was not had not come out in the court case was how she knew it was these two men that were being charged. So I said, and how did how did you identify these? And she said, they played with my sons from when they were children, and you could see the impact that that had on her. And it was, and the a whole generation of Bougainvillians went from being highly educated, well looked, well respected to a a generation missing out on education, on uh, the hospitals were decimated. And um, it was very, very difficult to listen to those stories. But as I said, they did not do what they did in Northern Ireland to have special laws relating to um, war or what they later did in Sierra Leone. So whilst I was there, because I was the only woman... By by the way, at that point, Northern Ireland didn't have any women judges. Mm. I would have been the first. But whilst I was there, and because I um, was doing work on women's rights and trying to promote the idea that women had a status and that domestic violence was wrong, and you know the number of men that would stand in the dock having either killed their wives or beaten their wives to a pulp or... And they would lean over. I remember one guy just leant over and he said, well, it was only my wife. I thought, you're saying that to the wrong person, boyo. <laughs> but uh, they would often say, well, we paid bride price.
2: Mm.
1: And bride price was a, a cultural system in parts of Papua New Guinea, not all parts, mostly the Highlands. Bougainville was quite different. Being matrilineal, they had quite different cultural um, rules and cultural restrictions. Um, But the idea that I was promoting women's status didn't always go down well. As I said, somebody wrote to the Chief Justice and said he didn't want me doing his rape case. I think he'd been reading Miles and Boone because he used to say, he said in court, I saw the love light in her eyes as she walked past. That's before he and four others raped Mm -hmm. her, but that's Mm -hmm. a different story. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, the prison visits that I did and the prison system that I did of checking prisons, it was very hard. We would stand in the sun checking every single person. And uh, some of those prisons had four or five hundred men in them. I'd go out regularly, and but it became known as a system of checking people's rights should they be there. And uh, that system led to the Commonwealth asking me to talk on women's rights, on the convention, on elimination of all violence against women, the CEDAW conventions. I
0: yeah, well, and the, from there ended up then being, uh, moving to Sierra Leone. Uh, and can you tell us then about that journey? And, all right, uh, yeah. Time?
1: What had happened was um, whilst we were still in Rabaul, uh, Rabal was wiped out by a volcano, two volcanoes. We lost our house and everything in it. And um, I, I stayed on trying to work with the prisoners. The prisoners said they would only speak to me and they wouldn't speak to anybody else. So Ian had to take me out to the prison. By that time, we were short of petrol, short of food. We were on water rationing. I had the clothes I stood up in. And the prisoners, there was 587 male prisoners, and I was locked in with the government, the governor of the prison. He, he and I went down and talked to them for a long time. It was one of the few times in life, when we had two psychopathic killers in, in the group, when it was one of the few times in life I was afraid because one of the couple of the prisoners at the back said, we want out and you can let us out. And I said, you're not getting out. And then I thought, God, if they go nasty, I've no chance, because they were standing only a few yards from me, and neither the governor nor I had any form of armament, and I had to get out before uh, we went. But we were transferred to Port Moresby, the capital. I took on another circuit. I was on the Supreme Court, but the time was coming to get home. We'd been in Papua New Guinea, not for the three years, but for 21 almost 22, we came back here. I was still doing quite a bit of work for the Commonwealth on case management, on women's rights. I was in places like Lesotho and the Gambia, um, Sierra, um, Tanzania, Guyana. I'd be sent out to these places. I went back to the bar in Northern Ireland. I went back to being a parole commissioner and in an appeals, and again, working in prisons. And then the Commonwealth contacted me again and asked if I would c- consider going to Sierra Leone because the civil war there was ending, and the courts needed to particularly implement legislation to do with corruption because it was that war didn't, was not a tribal war, as some are in um, some states, it was started off as a protest against corruption that went, got completely out of hand and became a vicious civil war. And uh, they asked if I would go out and work in the court for a while. And uh, I said I would go for six months and not a day more. Because if you cannot turn a court round and introduce a good management court flow management system in six months, you're not going to do it. And I'd already implemented those in Papua New Guinea, I'd implemented systems of getting uh, courts running properly and people's rights being uh, respected. So I went out for those six months. As I thought, I one of the first things I did, Johnny, was to go to the prison. And under um, legislation that went from England to all its colonies included a duty on a judicial inspection in the prison once a month. So I never gave them any notice when I was doing prison inspections. i just turn up mm-hmm. and you could see the policemen they'd say, oh, God, she's here again. But I went out, the governor was very, um, governors have always been very accommodating, always very constructive. Asked his uh, number two to take me around the prison. I said to him, when did you last have a judicial inspection? And he said, I've been here 25 years and you're the first I've seen Mm. And among the things I found in that prison, built for 350 people, over 900 prisoners in it at that point, were 14 men that had been held for four years without any warrant, without any charge, without anything. And I got that sorted out very quickly. I um, discovered that Sierra Leone Court wasn't particularly interested in getting itself sorted out. There was um, a whole culture of adjournment, adjournment, adjournment. Cases would run for 15 and 20 years. And I found the same in the Gambia when I went there. And my attempts to implement new systems met with resistance. One of the first things I discovered when I went there was the notice on the front of the court saying, no women may enter these premises wearing trousers. And I thought, well, we'll see about this. And we did see about that, (laughs) that changed. But the other thing was all the judges, all the magistrates were addressed as if they were men. And I said, look, I'm not a man Hmm. and I'm not going to be addressed as a man. And if you don't know the difference, the women are the ones with the long hair. And because you're in these gowns, sweats lashing off you because there's no air conditioning, there's no fans, it's a tropical country. But this resistance, and eventually the most senior counsel at the bar of Sierra Leone stood up and said, my Lord, there are no women at the bench or bar of Sierra Leone. And I thought, well, what the hell is he talking about? There were women lawyers, there were women judges. And then I realized what he was saying. Unless you are a token man, you cannot be a lawyer in Sierra Leone. And I said to him, Mr. Tijan Cole, welcome to the real world. We have women. With a bit of effort, we'll get ourselves into the 19th century. And that changed. That was one of the things that changed. And it changed a whole attitude. But I did it without any fighting.
0: Wow. And so you were ended up being in Sierra Leone for over 10 years. Is that right? And yes.
1: What happened? The six months got a bit extended. But then I was asked by the United Nations to take on, um, become a judge in the special court for Sierra Leone, which is the International War Crimes Tribunal for Sierra Leone, to deal with the crimes committed in the Civil War, as opposed to domestic crimes. And that's where it different from Bougainville. You had special categories of crimes and you had a statute that defined war crimes, crimes against humanity and breaches of international criminal law, uh, humanitarian law. So Sierra Leone, uh, I was elected the first president of presiding judge of our tribe court. There were two courts. One dealing with the bigger group of rebels and a group that were called themselves the Civil Defence Force, which were a group of what were traditional warriors, traditional hunters who, who had been coalesced into a defence group. And um, like they also went off the rails when it came to punishment of rebels, some of the stories we heard were truly horrific. So one of the, um, parts of the statute of the special court were crimes relating to violence against women, violence against women in war, is as old as the hills.
0: Mm. I've I've heard. Uh, I was reading something recently. It said um, uh, it's safer to be a a, uh, a male combatant in a, a male soldier in a war zone than to be a civilian woman in a time of war. And is that kind of what you were? That is saying?
1: very very true. Mm. Very true. Mm. And it's interesting if you look at history. If you go back down to where history became written, you'll find there's been arguments right along the line as to the status of civilian women in war. The um, Greeks and the Romans had two different attitudes. Some said um, it was all right to take women. Others said it wasn't. One of the people that didn't allow his soldiers to rape women was um, that famous Greek who conquered most of the world. His name suddenly gone Alexander. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He didn't allow his his soldiers to do that, whereas Kublai Khan allowed it. It was the concept was property. Mm. They were looting, and often soldiers were paid by looting, and looting included. Did it include the women? Were they the property of the men? Yes, they were the property of either their father or their husband. So they were a property right. And uh, writers such as Kelly Askin and um, Roy Porter use the terminology, they were the spoils of war. Another country that forbade attacks on women in war was Ireland. Ireland was the first European country to introduce written registration prohibiting Attacks on women during fighting. But it was up until then women had fought. and uh, them and the, the law was uh, I think it was 684. And that law spread throughout Ireland and into Scotland, and that's the oldest hum- European law, written law, uh, dealing with the rights of women and the status of women in conflict.
0: And so you were involved in um, landmark rulings, really, the first of their kind, um, related to, am I right, forced marriage, uh, child slavery, um, sexual sexual slavery, slavery, and also the first ruling against the sitting head of state.
1: That was very interesting, Mm. because up until then, the last sitting head of state that had been tried was a general in Nuremberg, interestingly enough it was well known that rape in the second world war was rampant on both sides particularly when the russians came through into germany there's a russian um, statue on uh, the outskirts of berlin to the unknown soldier locally known as to the unknown rapist but it was they were never dealt with in in places like Nuremberg, but on a head of state, there had been one. But it did. and of course Brezhnev had been brought to the Hague in front of the Yugoslav Tribunal, not Brezhnev, Milosevic. Milosevic Excuse yeah. me, I yeah. correct yeah. that. And uh, but he died prior to um, the finalization of his case. But yes, we had the first real standing on crimes. The first case dealing with sexual violence and conflict was actually in Rwanda. Mm. Before an outstanding judge called Navi Pile, she became she was from South Africa and she became later the um, uh, Human Rights Commissioner. She was a a still is a marvellous lady. Mm. I would often go and moan and groan to her when things were getting rough. But she um, was listening to evidence, a woman telling about the gang rape of her young child and herself and intervened and said, well, why has rape not been charged? And they then, prosecutor, amended that. And um, rape then became recognized as a crime against humanity and possibly a war crime. That was Rwanda. But the main ones, the most, a lot of them came out of our court. We didn't deal with forced pregnancy, but we dealt with sexual slavery and forced marriage and um, conscription, recruitment and use of child soldiers because child soldiers were some of the most vicious killers among the, in the, among the rebel groups. And the reason for that was they would be abducted, they'd be drugged, they would cut their faces and rub in drugs. And in the words of one young lad who gave evidence, he said, I went crazy, my eyes went red. And then they'd send him back to their village to kill their fellow villagers, so that they could not be reconciled later. So the use of child soldiers, and I remembered Bally Murphy and the impact, but to deal with this, this sexual slavery, the things we heard, Johnny, I couldn't repeat some of them, they were so vicious. The women were abducted, often the younger, younger women, and one of the things that really, I wouldn't say shocked me, but sticks in my mind, is the attitude, the attitude of entitlement. In Papua New Guinea, once we had a some young lads, young men charged with the gang rape of a girl. She was only 12. She'd been working in her family's field. And somewhere along the line, it was said, well, why did you attack this girl and rape her. And he just went, shrugged his shoulders like that and said, because she was there. That the whole concept that the woman was there and they were entitled. But this young girl was giving graphic evidence of being abducted and gang raped. And they had also got other girls at the same time when they attacked the particular households. And she said, and my sister said that if they capture you, they've got a right to rape you. And it was the use of the word right, that concept that I'm entitled to do it. And the acquiescence almost of some of those women i have been captured, and therefore they will do it. But um, the women that were captured fell into two groups, roughly. They were those who, um, particularly the rebel leaders, would take a fancy to, and they would become the exclusive right of that man. And no other soldiers were allowed to touch those women. And they were called married." Now the term "marriage" and, say, sexual intercourse," became interlinked because there was so, quite often no word in a l- local language for um, the concept of rape. Um, so th- that group where the exclusive property, because it was a property, right, that's the way they saw it, of one male, be a senior male or a junior one, the senior males they would often have uh, children in particular would look, do the washing and feeding and so on. The ones that further down the ranks, the wife would have to do everything, cook, um, have children. One woman had triplets during the forced march into Free Town. She gave birth to these triplets. Uh it was a terrible listening to it. But the women that weren't the exclusive property of one soldier were open to anyone. And they could be, I remember one woman describing maybe 14 or 15 men in one night, seven nights a week. Or a man describing how his niece was raped until she died. And then they threw her body in a pit. But there was clearly a distinction between the two groups. And that, to my mind, was a legal, but also a physical, because they described quite different suffering. And those that had been considered as wives could not go back to their own communities because, in their words, they were tainted with rebel blood. And they and their children were ostracized, others could. So their suffering was different. There was a mental anguish of being forced into a marital relationship that they didn't want to have. And when he got fed up with that woman, he would send her to the front lines where she would be killed, And uh, whereas the others were subjected to different physical and mental um, abuse. And I considered that the evidence showed clearly two different forms of suffering. And when it came to writing the judgment, and this was the first judgment that dealt with child soldiers, rape as an act of terror, sexual slavery, and forced marriage, I differed from my two colleagues on the sexual slavery and the forced marriage, and I wrote an opinion And I had to do a lot of work on it. I had to really do a lot of research on international status of marriage and the right to marriage and the right of a woman or a man to be married and distinguish it from um, arranged marriages where it's consensual. And I, I differed, as I said, from my colleagues on that. And I wrote a separate opinion,
0: like a dissenting opinion, a
1: dissenting opinion and saying um, recognising sexual slavery and forced marriages as crimes against humanity. And the appeal chamber upheld my decision. Okay. So I became recognised for those two and it was followed and particularly the decision and the definition also relating both to the forced marriage, but also the definition of use of a child in conflict, and made that a wide, a, wide, a wide definition, because the evidence showed how wide it was. Those children were not only killing machines, but they manned gateposts. They were sent dressed up as, as schoolchildren to find routes into villages, to pretend that they were, and to, to be lookouts, to be spies, and to find food. Food, fight, food finding was a big part of the whole Civil War. Napoleon, I used to think, Napoleon said an army t- travelled on its stomach, uh, so did Civil Wars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's why the definition of child soldiers and use of child soldiers is so wide, because the evidence showed how necessary those children were to keep those rebels going. Mm. And that, um, again, was uh, followed. It was followed by the International Criminal Court in the first case they did. Okay. But the sitting head of state was novel. And uh, the politics that led up to um, the arrest of Charles Taylor was was in a very political matter in West Africa, uh, but it involved other countries because one of the things that happened was that soldiers were sent in by ECOWAS, that's the West African mm-hmm. countries, as peacekeepers in Sierra Leone and Sierra Leone, not the court, not the court I was sitting in, but uh, my colleagues dealt for the first time on on attacks on peacekeepers Mm. as a crime. But they were immune from um, immune from prosecution, very controversial. Continually brought up during Charles Taylor's trial as by defense counsel, echoes here in Northern Ireland. Can you prosecute um, the people that are sent in from outside? Taylor uh, was arrested. He was brought back to Sierra Leone. Now, there was no doubt, it was never uh, in contention, that Taylor had never entered Sierra Leone. He was manipulating and dealing with things.
0: So he was in Liberia. All he the time. He was the head of state of Liberia. He, he
1: was the head of state But of
0: interfering in Sierra Leone. Correct. Mm.
1: For diamonds. Mm. The, uh, we got a whole lecture from a, di- a diamond expert that I ran over two or three days. But I discovered there's all sorts of diamonds. But I'll know one thing. Uh, that was also forced labor for diamond digging. And they'd be up to their oxters in water, getting diamonds. And the guards were the children, the child soldiers. And if if they thought somebody was stealing a diamond, they shot them on the spot. So I'll never, ever buy a diamond. So uh, Taylor, because it was thought that his presence in, continued presence in West Africa could destabilize West Africa, because he still had a big following in Liberia. The chant at the election was, and we heard it many times in evidence, was, he killed my ma, he killed my pa, I'll vote for him. And I could never, even though it was explained to me, I still don't quite understand it. But he, because of the concern on the part of the West African countries, the Security Council decreed that that particular trial had to be held outside West Africa. So we went from being the very first court, international court, to hold a, um, trials in the country where it happened to being shifted to The Hague. I personally felt we could cope with it, but the Security Council voted that way.
0: But it was initially you felt quite helpful that the trial was held in the country, so it wasn't being regarded as a bunch of foreigners coming in and interfering.
1: That's correct. It was very, very well received. We also had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, The special court had a very big what they called outreach, a very big educational um, process going out into the villages and out into the um, rural areas and explaining the role of the court because it wasn't understood there was a confusion between what was the rights of um, what was the role and the duties and the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the the role of the court that was confusing and it would be confusing for anybody without a, a without a, a chance of a, a basic legal education. We also had a a lot of criticism because one of the features of the rebels' activities was chopping off hands and arms. They called it a long sleeve or a short sleeve, whether you got your arm chopped off at the wrist or the um, elbow. And we had one man in particular who was an expert on how to chop hands off or one convicted. And they very understandably said, Well why is the money being spent on this court and we are here left that we can't work, we can't dig our fields, because the rebels have left us without a hand or an arm, sometimes two arms, sometimes no leg. And because that was a punishment. We had I shouldn't deviate, but we had a. I was dealing with contempt cases. I dealt with all the contempt cases when the main trials finished. And one of the horrible features of um, the fighting by the child soldiers was they would cut open pregnant women because they bet on the sex of the unborn child. And one of the convicted people said, I didn't cut open any women. But he was the expert on how to chop arms off. So we heard some truly gruesome things.
0: Horrible.
1: But we dealt with Taylor. He put up a very strong defense. He was well represented. There was a lot of quibbling about his, initially, about his um, defense counsel. He had a very highly respected. Um, Kareem Khan, and then uh, he sacked him. That's between the two of them. We couldn't be a party to that. We don't know the ins and outs of it. But then it was taken over by another counsel, and that trial ran on. He did challenge the fact that he was a sitting head of state, and therefore he was immune from any form of prosecution. And another um, first ruling by the special court for Sierra Leone is that there is no amnesty and no immunity from for persecutions for war crimes and crimes against humanity. So the, it's one of the smaller inter- or less known international court, but we have made quite a lot hugely of... Hugely significant judgments. To, yes, oh,
0: it's, it's amazing and remarkable to hear um, your involvement in in those truly uh, landmark decisions. Mm. Um, So you're detailing, just sketching some of the worst atrocities, gender based violence, which is so rampant um, around the world, particularly in areas of conflict. Um, uh, I wonder, you know, um, just what are your reflections when we look at justice and and a society that is truly reconciled, you know, and we, uh, where does justice fit into it? Uh, I guess a definition we use sometimes. Uh, John Paul Lederach talks about reconciliation as justice, uh, mercy, truth, and peace coming together, and you kind of need all of them. Um, it's not one or the other. Um, what's your reflection on the role of justice in a in a in bringing reconciliation and? Is justice always retributive? Can it be restorative, you know, or should it be restorative? Or uh, there's big questions, I guess.
1: I I think it is an important aspect of reconciliation. I can remember one woman who gave. Awful graphic evidence about the gang rape of her three daughters and herself. And at the end, um, when she would finished, she said to me, "Um, can I say something else? And lawyers hate a witness who says, because they think, God, what's she going to come out? And she said, I want to thank you for listening to my story. Mm. And that she felt better that people heard what she said. And that came through quite often, that need to speak out. One of the reasons we didn't have gender-based violence in previous war crimes hearings was they said, oh, women don't want to relive that. They don't want to talk about it. Mm. Um, and, And they'd be ostracized by their families if it comes out. But that was never my experience. They wanted to talk. They wanted it known. Yes, of course, some of them wanted to forget it. But one of the things, again, I'm deviating slightly, but it maybe will help explain something. The British legal system that was taken to the colonies included a statement about rape, which was made by a guy called Lord Hale, in I think it was 1770 something. When I meet Lord Hale in the afterlife, I'll straighten him out. But he said, rape is easy to allege and hard to disprove and with that went that saying plus if they don't um, complain early they're making it up that permeated the courts of the british colonies from papua new guinea to botswana to america america was the first to try and underline it but that concept about women being unreliable as witnesses, and not, it didn't really happen, came as part of a belief system that condoned a lot of gender-based violence. Plus, in places like Papua New Guinea, where they said, "Well, I've got a right to hit her," I paid bride price—that type of thing. So, when it came to when it comes to justice and reconciliation. One of the mistakes, I think, that was made here, and it was also acknowledged to have been made in Bougainville, was a failure to involve women in the reconciliation and peacekeeping. The person in charge of the decommissioning in Sierra Leone was Irish, been in the Irish army, and had worked in Cambodia. And he said his one regret was it didn't involve the women more in the, peacekeeping, in the peace process. Because at the end of the day, it's the women that will have to implement it back home. So do justice. And I think that justice is necessary. All right, our court was uh, an expensive court by West African standards. But it gave people a chance to hear It gave people a chance to speak. And the fact that they had the outreach that went out into the villages, went out into the schools, went out into the churches and talked to people contributed very widely to its acceptance. Yes, the amputees justifiably said, what about us? What about money being spent on us? And that is part of the victim's plea. We don't need just seeing people put in jail. We need to be looked after too. So do they go together? I think they're unnecessary. I accept that quite often maybe the justice bit is, can be expensive by standards of the ordinary person in the street. But certainly listening to people in Bougainville and listening people in Sierra Leone It came across very clearly how they wanted what they suffered to be made known.
0: Mm. Um, It kind of in some ways feels off um, subject um, as we're coming to the end of the interview. Um, There's so much fascinating um, kind of stories that you've got and lessons we can learn from the path that you've journeyed. But uh, the part of the theme of our podcast is is the role that at times religion can play in exacerbating conflict, and creating a toxic environment, and creating us and them. Um, religion was part of our conflict over here. Uh, it was part of it. It's not all about religion. It's sometimes people say it is. It's often it's just used. But just I wonder if there's some concluding reflections you have yeah, having grown up as a as a Catholic where Catholics didn't have the same rights as Protestants uh, Catholic women didn't have the same rights um, and you know you've seen so you've seen where religion is part of a conflict in a society and um, and as you've traveled the world, I'm sure you've seen it as uh, elsewhere um, what how do you what some reflections on faith and and religion and it's either toxic nature or can it be something that you've seen? Uh, restorative or constructive?
1: I don't feel, I've never felt that Northern Ireland was a religious. Mm. And I feel it's wrong Mm. to classify it as a religious Mm. war. It wasn't. You've got to see it as history. The Catholics and the Nationalists were the old Irish that were here. And the Ulster Scots, were the people that were given the land of the Irish um, after the nine years the nine years' war in, in Ulster. And they did those two groups acted differently to the groups that were the English who settled in parts of more southern parts of Ireland where they intermarried. And as the old saying was, it became more Irish than the Irish themselves. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen in Northern Ireland. That division was almost rigid. And quite frankly, I think it's because we were all Celts. (laughs) And one lot was as Thran as the other. (laughs) That's where I... uh, Because they didn't mix. And that feeling of um, right and entitlement was continued over the years. And yes, the Catholic Church was oppressive towards women. I think. Mm. Quite different from the time of Kyle Ardiman and Patrick who who did although the breastplate have St. Patrick has a bit in it, it says, Keep me from the wiles of women. I don't know why he didn't get mixed up with them. But in any event, there was a different status. And yes, the churches. But I do not see Northern Ireland as a religious conflict. conflict. Hmm. It's a conflict between the old people, the people that have been here for many generations, like my own generation. The Doherty's were in in a show. time immemorial. Mm. By the way, there's a Sierra Leonean clan who claim that they're Doherty's, but that's another long story. But in any event, when I went to Sierra Leone, it was a surprise to find that more than half, about 60 or 65% of the population was Muslim, and the rest were uh, Christian, or, and some animists. But there was no conflict. People intermarried openly. You couldn't ad- look at a group of Sierra Leoneans and say that what, those are Muslims or those are not Muslims because they didn't have those dress codes that are imposed, for example, now in Afghanistan. And so, religion was not always, to my mind, the root of conflict. It was used as a route of conflict. I have to acknowledge that in India, Pakistan, so on, it has a different history. But even there, the religious tenets did not mitigate it against violence.
0: yeah yeah Yeah. i don't know if that answers your question no no, it's uh, helpful it's helpful to kind of get that real i think honest and true pushback that it's easy to to just put ascribe conflicts as as religious things when often it's more about power and more about control and um and ethnicity and tribalism it it is
1: the uh, um Papua New Guinea was interesting when it came to religion. It had been, um, the the Papuan side had been occupied by the English, um, British. The, um, most of the New Guinea side had been occupied by Germans. So, and up at the top hadn't been occupied by anybody. So the country was divided. The um, Papuan side became what is now Methodist United Church. The New Guinea side became Lutheran and up at the top became a mix. But the churches agreed not to um, proselytise against against the other group. So there you do have different religions, but nobody mentions it.
0: Mm. Well, um, Justice Theresa Doherty, it's uh, been a real privilege to talk uh, about So much of your career, we could talk more, and um, I think even your insights into colonial law and the the real negativities around that were fascinating. Um, You've touched on it a wee bit there, Um, but I think we're we're running out of time a little bit. (laughs) No, it's not your fault. I just want to thank you for it's really uh, inspiring to to sit and hear you, um, and sit with someone who's really stood up for those who are least have the smallest voice in society and women and girls and children. And to hear that in a far off small conflict like Sierra Leone, you were able to make judgments that then rippled across the world as, as your judgments were regarded as landmark judgments mm-hmm. regarding to things such as sexual slavery, mm-hmm. and forced marriage, child slavery uh, and of course the prosecution of Charles Taylor. So um, Thanks for your work. Um, thanks for coming and being with us and uh You're welcome. it's thank you so much I hope Justice. It helps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you.
1: You're welcome.